1: this is
2: wheel bearings i'm dan roth and i'm sam abu Samad. so sam you've been getting around lately yeah i uh walked about 25 26 miles over the course of three days in las vegas um my least favorite place in the entire world <laughs> you have not been to atlantic city lately have you uh no and uh hopefully i never will i hated atlantic city So anyway, probably for many of the same reasons I hate Las Vegas.
1: Pretty much. Vegas is actually probably better, but we're not going to go devolve into (laughs) that uh, right now. But you also have made some appearances. I heard you on uh, NPR on my morning commute.
2: Um, Yeah, I was chatting with Tracy Samilton from uh, Michigan Radio about uh, Ford's uh, big CV to X announcement on Monday.
1: Yep, And also you appeared on uh, Twit.
2: I did. Uh, Oh, well, actually it was on uh, the tech guy show. So, uh, that's, uh, Leo Laporte's, um, radio show that he does every weekend on Saturdays and Sundays. It's syndicated on, I think about 200 stations across the country, uh, actually Canada or us and Canada. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a three hour show and he d- he has some segments with various people who uh, have some expertise in various areas like home theater and photography and, um, uh, travel technology. And uh, Leo invited me to join him on there to talk about auto tech. So I'll be doing that every Sunday uh, at uh, 1130 a.m. Pacific, roughly. Uh, and then the, the show is also available as a podcast as well. So you can download it later.
1: All right. Well, we should try to post a link in the show notes to where people could try to find that. If they're uh, interested we'll do in that. getting more Sam.
2: Yeah, yeah, about another 10 minutes a week or so, you know, which is probably about all most people can handle of me.
1: I uh, don't sell yourself short. Don't. <laughs> uh, but anyway, this I, don't know, week, I
2: think maybe we oversell ourselves sometimes, but
1: we're supposed to do that. You know, yeah. I, I like I come by it honestly, it's it's just my job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This week, we've got competitors actually in the uh, various uh, the the two different driveways or garages or fleets or whatever you want to call it. But you're driving the BMW X1 and I'm driving the Volvo XC40. So why don't you go first?
2: okay so yeah um, just before I headed off to uh, to Las Vegas to uh, spend some time in the desert I uh, spent some time driving the BMW x1 uh, X drive 28i uh, which is not you know among the shorter uh, names that BMW has in its lineup relatively speaking. Uh, But yeah, so this is BMW's smallest sport activity vehicle, as they like to call it, or or a crossover as most of the rest of the world calls it. Uh, It shares its platform, it's it's the same front wheel drive platform that's used uh, for the X2 as well as for the Mini uh, Clubman. No, not the Clubman. Or maybe it is the Clubman, but uh, also I think the Countryman. It is
1: the Clubman. Uh, you know, uh, I get confused. It's
2: also used for the Countryman. I don't know if the Clubman is on the same I think platform I, or a I, smaller one.
1: I think it's both. Any, anyway, it's a front anyway, wheel drive BMW. Yeah,
2: yeah it's it's uh, well. This one was all wheel drive, so you can get it as, as front wheel drive. Uh, so it's a transverse engine, um, front, you know, front drive or all wheel drive. This, the one I drove was all wheel drive um, for the U.S. market, at least. It's only available with a two liter turbo four cylinder, uh, which is uh, the same engine that's offered in the Mini Countryman. Uh, and it puts out 228 horsepower, 258 foot pounds of torque. And uh, it's it's quite a nice engine. You know, I've I, you know I've, I've driven variations of this engine in a number of different BMW and Mini vehicles now and, and quite like it, you know, it's got, uh, it's got kind of a snarly exhaust sound. Um, surprisingly so. Um, and you know, for a small premium crossover, it, it's, it's quite nice. You know, it's, it's got decent number of features in there. Um, you know, it's got BMW as usual. I drive uh, a relatively small, um, screen on top of the dash, you know, in, in the current fashion, I think it's a six inch display, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it has support for Apple CarPlay. If you decide to pay BMW's subscription fee, but uh, BMW does not do Android auto, unfortunately. Um, the, you know, the vehicle itself is, you know, it's, it's on the, it's definitely a, a compact, um, you know, perhaps even a subcompact. Uh, So, you know, when you when you get in, you know, it does feel fairly snug. You know, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a big, massive SUV at all. Um, You know, it you know, in most respects, it does feel more premium than uh, a typical um, mini uh, variant of the same platform would. Um, But it doesn't really feel any bigger. Um, and, and in some, in some respects, it almost felt a little tighter than the last countryman I drove. So, you know, it it doesn't have a huge amount of shoulder room, you know, it's fairly snug in the shoulders. Um, the, uh, the door openings are comparatively small, you know, so you, you do have to watch your head when you get in and out and, uh, the, the seat will accommodate, uh, you know, a couple of adults, uh, but you know, you don't have a a huge amount of space back there you know i you know putting the the driver's seat where i ha- normally have it you know i was able to sit behind myself you know with my knees just barely clearing the the plastic panel on the back of the seat uh, so you know it, it's it's usable for four adults although i probably wouldn't want to take a long road trip with it uh but you know going around town it's fine uh and certainly you know with a a, a young family with a couple of small kids, you know, they'll, they'll be fine with it. Um there's a decent amount of uh, cargo space in the back. Um, and, you know, it's, it's reasonably quick, you know, it, this thing, you know, despite its uh, fairly compact dimensions is actually fairly heavy. It's, you know, just shy of 3,700 pounds. Whoa. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> a it's kind of chunky, but you know, it's got, it's got so much torque that you don't really feel it all that much. You know, it, It uh, it's got plenty of get up and go. And, you know, it's like I said, it sounds pretty good. Um, You know, in general, it drives pretty well, you know, it's got um, for, you know, for what is nominally a front, front wheel drive vehicle. It's got decent steering feel to it, Um, you know, better. So better than, you know, some of the recent rear wheel drive BMWs, I think. Um, And, you know, it's, it's a decently fun car to drive. Although, um, you know, It's, it's not inexpensive, you know, it starts the front wheel drive. One starts at about 35 grand, uh, all wheel drive adds a couple thousand to that. And as equipped, the one I drove, uh, was about $43,000. So that's not
1: outrageous.
2: Uh, it's not outrageous, but you know, it's, and you know, it's not that much more than, you know, than the mini, uh, and, you know, frankly, you know the the interface you know the the user interface the hmi inside the vehicle you know i i personally found i personally prefer this layout to what bmw has or you know to what the what's in the minis um and uh it's uh it's it's you know it's fine you know it's it's Typical modern BMW. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't have the funkiness of a BMW or a mini interface with all the toggle switches. And, you know, I, I personally find the, the mini interface to be somewhat more confusing than, uh, you know, than it needs to be just more, more for the sake of style than functionality. Yeah.
1: It's definitely the mini stuff gets tiresome. I noticed the same thing when I tried the X2 a while back, I really liked the way it drove. <laughs> I liked the interface um, and I thought it was a really nice sort of premium compact crossover. I don't know how much daylight there is between the X1 and the X2. They seem to be pretty much the same thing. Um, And I did think that the mini on the same basic hardware was a much better deal, but you have to put up with the mini stuff. And that may not be your thing. So if you want something that's a little bit more conservatively styled, a little bit more, I don't know. Uh grown up in some ways, then you're going to have to go with the BMW. So, you know, the X1 at 43 made a much makes a much better case for itself than the X2 did at like 50 something, which is what I what what it cost the one that I drove. So.
2: Yeah, and you know, the X2 is, you know, because it's got the uh uh even numbering on it, you know, means it's supposed to be more of the coupe-like variant of the X1, you know, much as the four series is to the three and the six to the five and so on. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, anything above the mid forties for, for a car like this, you know, is probably too much, but you know, in this price range, you know, for a premium vehicle of this type, it's probably okay. This one, you know, but at that price point, you know, it doesn't really have, it didn't really have any, um, driver assist features there's no adaptive cruise control no lane keeping none of that stuff you know you're basically limited to like backup camera and that's about it
1: really so is it not available or was it just not on it's
2: uh it's available it just wasn't on the one i was driving
1: and so to get it you probably got to buy a package that's pricey
2: yeah it's probably um at least a couple of grand more than that
1: yeah so and that's it's sort of that's the bmw thing that's how they get you um, but it, it becomes they, they nickel and dime you to death. Yeah, but it also becomes uh, a little frustrating at that point because you're already paying premium money for this thing to have you know none of those features. Like that's th- that's where it gets annoying. If you're actually spending your own borrowed money,
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: it, it, it's like well, no, that sh- that should be standard because you can get a Jeep Compass with that stuff that's roughly the same size for no, I don't know low twenties. I granted it's a Jeep Compass, not a BMW, but
2: yeah, but you know what, the new generation compass is actually a pretty nice vehicle.
1: Yeah, well, it's as distinctive as the BMW, <coughs> just in a different way.
2: Yeah. And, you know, if you you know, if you option up a compass, you know, with the Trailhawk package on there, you've actually got a a pretty capable off-roader, which I don't think any variant of the uh of the X1 is ever really gonna be a serious off-roader. <laughs> Not on purpose. <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> uh but i mean it, otherwise though how did you how did you like it what kind of fuel economy did you get i guess is is one of my questions uh, yeah it was
2: about 25
1: eh, that's not great i mean no it's, it's not
2: it's great heavy, but you know but... it's okay yeah it's it's heavy you know and it's got a fair amount of power
1: yeah so does it does it make an argument for itself among the increasingly crowded class of premium compact crossovers. It just, just kind of get lost.
2: No, I, I, I think it, I think it's, I think it's pretty competitive. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a smaller vehicle than, you know, say the XC40, which you're going to talk about in a minute. Um, you know, well, maybe not. It, it feels, it feels smaller. Well, you know, and that was surprising to me is uh, somebody was
1: asking me about the XC40 compared to the RAV4. And I thought the RAV4 was a whole other class size larger. It's not. They're, dead on interior volume wise they're the exact same size so um you may not have it in front of you but i'm curious what the the interior volume of the x1 is as well because the xc40 is about 98 cubic feet um
2: uh, and it see. seems
1: like the the x1 might be about the same
2: size so just, i think it's i think it's less than that really um uh, yeah let me uh Let's go to fueleconomy.gov fuel economy.gov where they have oh, yeah. such stats that are readily comparable.
1: They usually do. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting just to see how that impression of the RAV4 being bigger. Uh, you know, I don't know where it certainly
2: seem the Rav the Rav certainly seems bigger on the outside.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm used to be able to get a three row. Maybe that's what my impression is like a holdover that it was. I don't, I, I can't imagine that they've shrunk it.
2: <laughs> that seems no, wrong it, to me. They definitely, they definitely have not done that, let's see okay, so x c forty and twenty nineteen Toyota
1: I'm surprised and that site's still up, given the uh shutdown
2: <laughs> well as long as as long as it doesn't crash, it's fine if if anything crashes, then you know they won't be able to get it turned back on, but
1: <clears throat> <laughs> we we'll won't be using the wayback machine for it,
2: yeah. Okay, so I've got uh, X1, XC40, and RAV4 in front of me here. Uh, Oh, Okay, surprisingly, the X1 is rated at 101 cubic feet passenger space and 27 cubic feet of cargo versus 98 for the XC40 and 25 cubic feet for the cargo. They don't have the the specs listed here for the RAV. Um, so if, you know, if you want to go ahead and start talking, you know, give, give us your impressions of the RAV40, I will look up the, uh, the RAV specs.
1: Yeah. I found on those a, on uh, Toyota website. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the XC40, I was actually quite surprised by it because my experience with uh, the, the larger Volvos has been a little bit varied. You know, I certainly love what they've done to reinvigorate the brand from a, a style standpoint it it's definitely distinctive and that carries down to the the xc40 which is on a different set of hardware it's on the uh, compact modular architecture which is for the smaller cars
2: right volvo's doing two two architectures now the the slp is it slp or sla i can remember oh. it's slp okay uh Scalable. Oh, SPA, SPA Scalable yeah. product architecture. Right. And that's what they use for the 60 and 90 series. That's and then this compact the one ones, yeah. for, for the XC40. And they're also sharing it with some GLE stuff and, and Lincoln Co.
1: Yeah. And, if you know, it feels really solid from, from behind the wheel. And the, the thing that impressed me the most was that on this car, they have figured out how to make it ride and handle appropriately for the class. Um, it probably... Doesn't have the the composure at the limits that the BMW might, but for eight tenths driving, it's f- fully competitive. It doesn't crash over stuff, and that was my complaint about the SPA cars is that they just they they don't feel um, supple enough. Uh, I know it's a kind of a weird word to use, but they just they they should soak up stuff a little bit more than they do. And, and this one has a good good balance. But also, I just I really love the the distinctiveness of the XC Forty because I think that's as the market kind of gets very crowded and as automakers consolidate you know you have got two things going on right? there's there's more crossovers than ever but there's <laughs> like we're getting fewer car makers so each thing that's going to survive has to really stand out and the XC Forty really does it has its its own really uh, distinctive look it, it catches your eye and uh, it it's Got a, enough kind of whimsy like stuff that they can't get away with on, say, the XC90 or even the XC60, which are little, they take themselves a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. The XC40 is it's a little bit more entry level, Uh it's not priced that way. But yeah. uh, it, it's it's at that sort of like it's the
2: first. But is anything really priced that way these days? No,
1: no. And it's it's the involves have always been expensive, but the XC40 is that first step into the brand, or it's that it it covers both of the roles it's the smaller volvo crossover and it it could be your your entry point um and it, it does that really well and it has a lot of nice touches i i love the interior design as well there's you know they pay attention to the details and that's it it doesn't matter how much it costs that just it pays Except off for census yeah um we'll get to that <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love you know just the the shapes and the themes that they've used the there's you know lovely metal trim and the oblong vents you know that stuff looks mm-hmm. like it could have been lifted from a, a 164 back in like 1969 it's just it's lovely uh, and they've even you know census has been well integrated into the design and flow of the dashboard that tablet screen is is you know it has a prominent place it's not way down on the console uh you know it's up there like convention is now but it also doesn't look quite as tacked on it looks more integrated which is is right. nice did uh,
2: did it feel more responsive to you yes. than prior ones that you've tried okay yes. so it wasn't just me
1: no it feels a lot more snappy um okay and I'd, so i spent a good amount of time talking about the philosophy of these systems and the philosophy of how they should be reviewed uh, with (laughs) Volvo's (laughs) PR guy a while ago. And, you know, he made a lot of really good points. And so I wanted to give um, Census, which I've complained about in the past, um, a a fair shake and get over myself with some of my aversion to the automatic uh, controls and stuff. Because I think the people that buy the cars and equip them this way, they want that stuff um you know my volvos had it because i was buying used and the used buyer like your opinion doesn't matter because you <laughs> you're not buying the car new uh, so they're making them for for new buyers well your
2: opinion still matters uh, even if you're buying it used i, I guess i mean in in, ter- in terms in, in, you know if if there's if there are configuration options You know, if I mean, census is standard across the line on on all these Volvo's now, so you don't have an option. Right. But if there were, you know, if there were different options, you know, you know, like lower trim levels that had a more basic system, you know, or that you know didn't use a touchscreen, you know, yeah, even as a used car buyer, you have the option to look for one of those instead of. You know, the the, pre, the the so-called premium one. That's true. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're buying new or used. You still have, you know, your opinion is still relevant. And if you don't like what's in there, you go to another brand. That's
1: true. So I guess as an automaker, you, I'm, I'm sure that they don't care as much about what that opinion does to the resale value unless it really craters it.
2: Well, actually, I mean, actually they do. They, they care a lot about really? resale values. Yeah, because... You know, especially in the premium end of the market, you know, uh, the a lot of the sales, and in fact, in many cases, the majority of the sales, as much as two thirds of the quote unquote sales are actually leases. Oh, that's right. A, yeah. You know, a lot of premium buyers lease rather than buy. And so you know, the, the resale value has a huge impact there on the cost to leasing customers because, you know, it's the the, the lease payment is directly related to, you know, what the, the residual value of the car is, you know, after it comes off lease, you know, then the manufacturer has to dispose of it somewhere. They have to sell it, you know, to, to somebody else or send it to auction. And You know, so they calculate that lease based on, you know, the MSRP minus the residual value, you know, and then, you know, over whatever the term of the lease is. And, you know, if the residual value is low, then the lease payment is going to be higher and it's going to be less affordable Mm. to a lot of customers.
1: That's true. And that's I think that's why, you know, it's maybe a chicken and egg issue, too. You see a lot of these cars like BMWs, Audis, Mercedes and Volvo are, are leased because the lease deals are very good. And mm-hmm. those deals are probably very good because they can get, you know, the residual value out of them. Um, right. That's, that's, that's interesting. I didn't, didn't think it. I clearly didn't think my commentary all the way through, <laughs> uh, but uh, yes. Welcome to
2: wheel bearings <laughs> folks. <laughs>
1: uh, it, it's, this is a, a, lov- a, a lovely, a lovely, compact premium crossover. I really, really like the way it drives. I think everybody has been, pretty positive about it and i can see why because it's just a, a friendly uh volvo like vehicle you know they have got the character right and uh, i don't know that i could jump into uh, an spa volvo i don't know that i would be happy buying an xc90 or an xc60 or an s90 even as a long time volvo owner and enthusiast uh,
2: those cars what about the what about the 60 series models
1: i haven't tried one yet um okay but i'm assuming that they're they're also spa based so it'd be a lot they yeah they are but they're they're you know a little more
2: modestly sized
1: yeah um again like i they're beautiful and i love them and i love i i they're nice places to spend time i don't know from a driver point of view if it would satisfy me enough and for me when i'm buying like that's my real determination is am i going to hate this every time i drive it and realize that i'm paying to hate it um, <laughs> so the xc40 is not like that it it is a volvo that could bring me back to volvo uh it's just it it is light on its feet enough it it has all of the features. You know, when I wind up spending my money on cars, I become a feature buyer. Um, so it has the automatic climate control and um, all of the, uh, the the uh, what do they call it now? Intelli- Intelli- assist, the, the the Pilot Assist stuff. Um, oh, yeah. Pilot Assist. Which I was using. AD-
2: ADAS, ADAS stuff. Yeah,
1: all the ADAS stuff. Driver, advanced I, Driver Assist. And I was using that last night. I actually, I, I said, you know what? I'm going to be the the typical non type A driver of this car. So I I set the climate control on like auto. I was like, you do your thing, make it seventy degrees in here. And uh, I got in, and I pointed it at home, and I turned on pilot assist and like let it you know do its thing all the way down, uh, sort of stop and go, and then onto the highway. And so it was it was doing the lane keeping stuff, kind of. Yeah, I have to keep a hand on the wheel, but. Other than that, once you sort of let go a little bit, um it it works really well. And so I, I think that they've they've nailed that kind of stuff down. I think Pilot Assist could use a little bit more sort of um I don't I don't wanna I'm not like a little more delicacy in the the steering. It, it gets kind of like we're gonna turn the wheel and then we're gonna turn the wheel and then we're gonna turn the wheel. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's kind of notchy, but I think they're I mean, all it, like that.
2: It has it has gotten a lot better. It's certainly you know, the control may not be as smooth, as smooth and refined as you'd like, but in terms of its ability, <clears throat> excuse me, to actually uh, see and track the lane and, um, you know, stay in, you know, stay centered in the lane, even, you know, when you're. Going you know seventy miles an hour on the highway, you know on a on, you know through those curves where you know previously the especially the ninety series and to a, a lesser degree the XC sixty I haven't driven the S or V sixty yet but the the XC sixty um, you know would tend to drift outwards as you're going through those curves if you, you know, if you weren't putting much steering input in. The XC Forty really has an ability to just keep tracking the the curves and and stay where you expect it to be.
1: Yeah, it's a little uncanny. It took me a little bit to get used to that because it does, it, it 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 doesn't hit other cars, obviously, but it you know it gets a little closer to one side than the other than I'd prefer sometimes, and it's just it it's got it, it has it under control. But you know, it's it's like when you're driving when you're riding with somebody else driving, and that's it's, it takes a little bit of of sort of readjusting yourself to that. But as, uh, you know, I, I had a—I was basically on a phone call for the whole ride back, and so I didn't pay as much attention. I, I was purposely distracting myself. Bad
2: boy. But no, I was
1: doing it on purpose uh, <laughs> to see how it would do.
2: That still doesn't make it any no, better. I mean, You're I was still paying not supposed to do that.
1: Atten- like, I was, anyway. <laughs> I wasn't reading my phone. Uh, but it it uh, it does really well. And i I think that they have... Made a, a winner of a product there. I I really 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 like the XC Forty. I love that you can get it with um, color, like two tone on the outside and bright
2: that, red. That scents. is that is a trend I do like in a yeah. lot of the uh, newer vehicles. Is you know bringing back some two you know some deliberate two tone stuff, unlike you know a certain manufacturer that will remain unnamed. <laughs> uh, you know you know ha- having you know like contrasting roof colors. You know I mean this is something that kind of started with many you know when they revived mini you know in the early part of the century um you know they all they all was offered you know contrasting or different roof colors relative to the body but you know the way Volvo and and Nissan and and several other manufacturers are doing it now i think i think it you know it add, it adds more character to the cars it does and it's like that kind of stuff like everything old is new
1: again well all of that stuff that used to be done was, was it, it's the same same kind of thing they would tweak the cars uh, to keep them fresh, and you, know, you look at look at what FCA does with the Grand Cherokee. That thing doesn't go two or three years without some kind of tweak, um, and it's not necessarily a big tweak, but it, it gets gets adjustments, uh, and that keeps it somewhat fresh and keeps people you know, sort of looking at something that's a little bit new. And you can tell that it's new. Um, and I also with the ADAS stuff in the Volvo, I really like how they've uh, they've erred on the side of caution because that's you know safety is Volvo's thing uh the the system will back off when it comes to when it notices other cars trying to merge or if they're in a situation where you know they've got an exit ramp and you you continue straight it it may be frustrating if you expect it to just barrel ahead but it's nice that they've made it so that the car kind of goes, you know what, I'm just going to just slow down here. And if the person wants to take over, that's fine, but I'm going to go slow. And they've, you know, so it doesn't, doesn't wind up barreling into stuff that it shouldn't. Um, That's nice to see. And then when you do want to go make a lane change, it's programmed to actually, it'll accelerate uh, as it changes lanes instead of um, being, being confused and, and slow and making you a hazard. So it seems like Volvo really has, a good philosophy about how they have put the 8s into the cars, and you know the size of the XC40 is really nice. The back seat, I can sit behind myself easily. Uh, my kids are fine in it. It is on the smaller side. It has a decent amount of cargo room, um, and the the T5 engine is 248 horsepower. So that's it's plenty powerful. You know all that stuff is pretty much dead on with the the X1 that you were talking about, even in including fuel economy. It's not exactly.
2: And and speaking of cargo room and and volume, uh, I did pull up uh, the Toyota specs for the RAV4. Yeah. And um, so it's similar in terms of passenger volume to the X1, a little bit bigger than the XC40 at 102 cubic feet without a moonroof and just shy of 101 uh, with the moonroof where it really differs. You know, I mean, I think we both commented that, you know, the, the RAV seems bigger than the other two. And it is actually substantially larger. It's just not the pass that volume is not given to the passengers. Uh, it's got thirty eight point four cubic feet of cargo space behind the second row. Oh, yeah, that's like ten cubic feet more than either of these. Yeah, the the uh, the BMW is twenty seven and the the Volvo is twenty five. So it's you know it's got a lot more cargo space back there.
1: Yeah, and so as a family vehicle, the Rav probably makes more sense on a variety of levels. But if you're doing for, for like, you know, if you need a second car or just something smaller or whatever, it, the the Volvo makes makes some sense. You, you will find that you use up all of that cargo volume pretty quick. That's not a ton of, yeah. of space. Um, but if it's the second car, again, like, you know, it, we, we but, you know, it's it's home. also
2: it's also a lot more cargo space than you get in a sedan. Oh, yeah.
1: Sedans in this size
2: class are kind of
1: useless. Uh, so I I kind of like that crossovers are popular. At least they're useful
2: well i mean i'd I'd rather just have a wagon yeah of course but we or a hatchback we can't always have what we want right (laughs) says who um that's
1: sure you can get yourself a (laughs) torx um i i do still want to say as much of a as much as you know i got warm feelings about all of the um systems the modern driver assist in the volvo The census still needs some work even on faster hardware which this seems to have the the disappointing thing is that there's the layout the menu layout is is, uh confusing and i understand that um once you get it all set you're not going to fiddle with it as much and the voice commands do work and i was using voice commands to place calls and switch audio sources and that kind of thing so that's there and that works really well um so you have to retrain yourself to some of that which will happen as as an owner but what they're never going to get around is the fact that this version of census it's got too much on the screen the touch targets are too small and that is really hazardous when you're driving and so you can say yes the ADAS stuff mitigates that but
2: you're you're introducing cognitive load and distraction just for simple stuff you know think things like uh, especially the, the climate control.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got a big climate screen. control
2: should not be in the touchscreen. No, and if it is, make it the only thing that's in the touchscreen. Like, make it big, yeah. or, you know? or or give yeah, give it a dedicated space that never moves. Um, yeah, you know, so you're not jumping back and forth between uh, between different modes.
1: Yeah, so that's that criticism is not going to go away until they fundamentally change the way they they do that. The UI is is not good. The menu structure it makes sense when you have it explained to you, but it's it's one of those things that you still just need to really spend time with. And even after you spend time with it, it's just it's there's a lot of clicking that's not necessary. It's not a fine tuned user interface. Um, so. Yeah, you'll get used to it as an owner, but I don't think you should have to. But the rest of the car is great. And I would put up with that <laughs> <laughs> because I, and it, it's not cheap either. It's no, just, I,
2: I, I, I agree with you. I mean, well, I think, you know, given You know, the equipment level, you know, what's included, you know, because if you compare, you know, if you compare the, um, you know, the price with what you get in there, uh, you know, it's not cheap, but, you know, compare it to the BMW. You're actually, you're getting a lot of those ADAS features and other things included actually, uh, you know, I think a lower price point than what I, you know, when I had the, the XC40 a while back, you know, it had a lot of that stuff in there at a lower price than the the BMW X1. Um, So, you know, I think in its segment, I think it's actually a pretty decent value.
1: I think it probably is. Uh, This one was a little bit impressively expensive at $46,000, but it has everything. You know, it has it has navigation, which the BMW charges you extra for. It has a panoramic moonroof. It has, you know, all the heated goodies for the cold weather package. It um there's just really there's there's nothing else to really want here. It has a harman audio system, so it's it's got the upgrade there. Uh you know, they the only thing it doesn't have that I thought it might because it's it it's in that price room is the, the crystal shifter, but I don't think they even offer that in x 40 <laughs> and
2: i mean you know who really I, needs that so good on volvo for doing things the volvo way
1: i don't like the volvo way when it comes to shifters it requires wasted <laughs> motion you got to bump it to yeah you know it puts it in neutral that, and then you got to put it in the gear you i don't i don't like that
2: <laughs> yeah that I, I i think you know when i first experienced that on the xc90 plug-in hybrid um you know i didn't like it there and i still don't like that approach um you know there should be you know maybe a separate button or you know some some separate position that is just dedicated to neutral you know now you know when you go from the the center, central position you tap it for either forward or back one time it goes into neutral and then you have to tap it again in the same direction if you want to go to drive or reverse right
1: and i think i think the rationale is that that again is done that way for safety um, so you don't inadvertently select the wrong gear
2: with a bump. Uh, the safest thing is, gonna do is going I don't, to do is control. I don't buy that.
1: I, I can, because, I can, I can because, understand the point. Know, I don't like it functionally.
2: Well, you know what? I, I, I have to disagree because, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think it actually is safer because if you forget and only tap it one time, you know, now you're in reverse and the, you know, if you take your foot off the brake pedal, the car could end, could start rolling away. Uh, which is what happened to me in the XC90, you know, the first time I did it. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's exactly the sort of thing that killed um, uh, actor uh, Anton Yelchin uh, a couple of years ago when his, he, his Jeep Grand Cherokee, you know, it had a similar kind of thing. And he, you know, he inadvertently put it into, into neutral instead of park. And, you know, he got out to get, you know, check his mailbox and yeah. the car rolled over him and killed him.
1: Yeah i mean i wish that there were standardized controls for all of the things um i think that would solve a lot of confusion uh and until then we're gonna have companies trying to do it because they want to leave their unique mark on things where they you know philosophically think it's safer or the research says it's safer or whatever so i don't know i just
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think a a lot of it is, you know, trying to create a distinct user experience that separates your brand from from other brands. And, you know, we uh, when I I was at CES this week, I had uh, dinner with some some folks from a company based in Seattle uh, and some other analysts. And, you know, we had (laughs) a a long, a long discussion about, um, you know, about, you know, brand, you know, uh, different brand, you know, branding, you know, whether companies, you know, whether automaker, you know, why automakers want to have a distinctive look or distinctive branding for a lot of this interior experience stuff. You know, and I think part of, you know, the thing that I brought up is that, you know, for for us, you know, reviewing vehicles, it becomes more and more of a challenge to review vehicles because in so many functional ways, you know, almost all new vehicles have actually gotten so good. Yeah, you know, I mean, they tend to be pretty reliable. They, you know, everything generally tends to work. And, you know, as a result, you know, they become as, as they become better and better, they become more and more alike and, you know, they start to become almost commodities. Yeah. And so how do you, you know, how do you distinguish? And especially, you know, as you start to electrify, you know, it's harder, you know, with an electric powertrain or a hybrid powertrain to make your car feel, fundamentally different from your competitor's car. And so how, you know, how, how does a, how does BMW make their car feel different to the customer and create a different user experience for the customer than for Volvo or Audi or BMW or, you know, Ford or general, you know, Chevrolet for that matter, you know, and the, this is one of the kind of the few remaining areas where they feel like they can make a difference. And, Unfortunately, you know, I think in some cases it's being different just for the sake of being different as opposed to necessarily being better. Yeah.
1: And that's something that that will screw you in the end. You know, we when we design stuff like landing pages at the day job, um, our goal is not to look pretty. it It, it is to convert. And so it, like you kind of have to have that rationale when you're designing a uh, any user interface which an automotive interior you know especially for a driver that's that's a user interface so you have to you have to try to remove friction that's what we talk about is like let's remove the friction from you know the person doing the thing we want them to do and so in a car you've got to remove friction from the person being able to do the thing they want to do because that's such a critical environment you know you've got four thousand pounds of metal you could be hurtling down the freeway at seventy Miles an hour. Uh, You you don't want it to be hard for them to do the thing they want or need to be able to do. I can't tell you the amount of times where I've been stopped in traffic on the highway because, you know, you get rush hour gridlock and it's so nerve wracking when you're the last car in line. You know, you've just slowed down and you're looking in your mirror and you're like, I hope those people behind me see me and you see somebody closing fast and you start looking around for the, the hazard flasher button and it's not in the same place on every car. And so you mm-hmm.
2: get like, well, yeah, I mean that in some respects, that's almost a problem that is, um, you know, distinct to, to people like you and I, and, and a lot of our colleagues, you know, in the the media side, you know, who are jumping in and out of different cars every week, you know, most people, you know, drive the same car for a year, two, three, 10 years at a time. And so, you know, you do become accustomed to things like, you know, where the controls are and, you know, so you're not going to be looking for the hazard flasher or, you know, or other, other controls, you know, after the first week or two.
1: Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's fair. Yeah
2: We, we do have, we do have kind of a first world problem there. We do.
1: All right. <laughs> well, uh, you talked about being
2: out at CES, um, so well. But before before we get to that, okay, uh, let's talk about another crossover. Oh, alrighty. Let's talk about the Explorer.
1: Uh, that's not really. I guess you could call it a crossover. That's a family truckster.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Ford calls it an SUV. You know, it's a it's a unibody. You know, it, it's another utility vehicle. You know, it's it's in this broad spectrum of utility vehicles, th- you I, know, I, I, as, as they're yeah. often called. I, now. I
1: think really it's the future of Ford. Uh, <laughs> it needs to do well or Ford's, Ford's going to have a problem. And I think it's really well positioned to do well. You saw this earlier um, before it, it had been released and uh, remember talking about it in vague terms. Um, but you were really positive about it. You know, it looks good. It's on a new platform. That's rear wheel drive. It it looks. It, they have that great picture from the press release where they've got all generations next to each other. So this yeah. looks like the biggest and widest Explorer. But they've done a lot of it's, well. It's, it's actually
2: not. It's actually not really. I mean the, the the overall dimensions are almost exactly the same as the the outgoing. You know, the 2019 Explorer. I
1: hope the interior dimensions are bigger. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, yeah. The the pack the packaging is definitely a lot better. So, you know, I mean, you look at it, you know, compared to the current generation Explorer, you know, it's, it's clearly an Explorer, you know, it's got those, the certain cues that have been there, you know, from day one in 1990 of the Explorer, you know, the blacked out B pillar and D pillar. And then, you know, in the most recent generation, they also you know blacked out the A pillar. So you've just, you just have, you know, the C pillars being body color, you know, holding up the roof and then everything else, you know, just looks like the glass wrapping around and it's a good, it's a good look, you know, and I think, you know, where it's evolved on this, this new generation, you know, the wheelbase is a few inches longer. Um, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the lines, you know, you look especially from the side, you know, you look at those those character lines, you know, that are still there from the previous generation. But now they're it looks more sharply creased. They kind of sweep upwards a little bit in the body. And when you look at the, the roof line, it's slightly less horizontal, you know, towards the back. It kind of sweeps down just a little bit, you know, to give you almost a, a, a hint of a, you know, a boat tail, you know, gives it a little more hint of, of motion, little little sleeker looking. But. You know the the overall length is like eight millimeters longer, I think, or something like that. It
1: looked a, it looks noticeably wider in the picture, and that may just be lens distortion because uh, it's at the edge of the picture.
2: Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think it's a I think it's a, a an optical illusion, and I think you know the way that they've done the the new grill, you know, the hexagonal grill and the slimmer headlights, mm. it it creates the impression that it's wider than it is, but it's it's not. Uh, it's it's spot on the same width.
1: I think. I mean, so. Clearly, Ford didn't think, and I, I don't think they're wrong with this, Ford didn't think there was too much wrong with the design of their, their outgoing Explorer. Because it's, there's a lot of similarity there on the new one. But the proportions are a lot better on yes, the new car. Yes, absolutely. It, it just, it, it does, it looks a lot better. It just, it looks more premium, which I think is what they were going for. It just mm-hmm. it has a certain presence at the curb. Um, which is nice, and they've they've you know it's an important car for them. They've they've given it a new engine. There's a three liter EcoBoost that I think is um, th- available for the first. Time. I don't. That's not in the Lincoln, is it? That's the only available in the Explorer.
2: Up up until now, that that three liter uh, twin turbo has been a Lincoln exclusive. Uh, so they they initially brought it, you know did the three liter when they did the refresh of the MKZ a couple of years ago. It's in the Continental. Um, and uh, and it's also in the aviator now. OK, <clears throat> um, so it's you know, it has been a Lincoln exclusive up until now. This is the first Ford application of the three liter. It's it's the nano V6, you yeah. know, which started off as the two seven. And, you know, now it's the three liter version. Um, and that's going to be in the platinum um, as well as <clears throat> Actually, I can't talk about the other one yet. Um,
1: (laughs) Well, so the line, they've got got like the base model, the XLT, the limited, the limited hybrid. That's an important one. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ST, which is also important to folks like us. And then the Platinum. So like that, that's quite a range. That's a, that's a lot of different vehicles. And what this makes me initially think is there are a lot of reasons why, we didn't buy an Explorer when we were we were buying. And this erases a lot of those reasons. It's on a rear-wheel drive platform now. So to me, I like the dynamics of of those uh, platforms better. It's more space-efficient, which was a big problem for me in the last Explorer. I just, uh, you know, I was looking around like, there's a lot of metal here. <laughs> Why so yeah. no space? Um, and, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. And so I'm not not knocking it, but it's just, you know, I, I think that... Uh, this is a very important update. It's been long and coming. Um And it. The, yeah. I mean, the
2: current, current Explorer has been out there for eight years now.
1: Yeah. Um it, it, And the, the base model, what is it? It, it comes with the
2: 2.3 liter EcoBoost. Um, yep. So basically the same engine as the base engine in the Mustang. So
1: that should be relatively efficient in something this large. I know that they've, they've done some work to, to bring some weight off of it.
2: Yeah. It's about 200 pounds lighter now.
1: Um, And it's got you know it's got the latest ford tech so that should be decent um ford's been added about half as long as bmw with the sync and sync three which was my ford touch and yeah um so uh that's getting more and more refined so uh, hopefully it's better i still don't like the placement of the screen (laughs) in the
2: interior you don't you don't like the the dash top placement hate it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why?
1: Because it, it breaks up the lines. That's especially in the pictures well, they use. Yeah, from maybe, the, I
2: guess. I guess from from an aesthetic standpoint, I, I can see that.
1: It, yeah. It, it, it. So the pictures they used of the interior for the the press reveal, the press release, are all the platinum interior, and that that's a. Mm-hmm. Just, it looks so great in pictures, and you've got all these horizontal elements because they have the space to work with, and the, those themes work really nice. And then you've got like, oh, somebody left their iPad here.
2: <laughs> it's yeah. just like sitting yeah, there. Yeah, the the platinum is the only one that gets that ten inch portrait layout uh, display. All the others get uh, an eight inch landscape display. Okay, that's probably so better. It's, yeah, no, it's it's. I I think I think it is better. Um, you know, but and from a functional standpoint, I do like the approach of having the the screen, you know, sitting up on top of the dash because it is closer to your line of sight. So you're not you're not looking away from the road so much. You know, to to get a quick glance at what's there you know for navigation or anything else
1: All right. yeah, i won't complain with that um i will complain it looks like the icons and stuff the touch targets like we were just talking about with sync are too small but it looks like smartly they've pulled the um uh the hvac and stuff out um to physical buttons and it's got you know it's got a does it have a push button shifter or what's the
2: ford uh it's got a rotary shifter okay so same same as what's in the latest fusion and and several and several other uh, vehicles now so so i've really basic basic rotary shifter
1: i really do think that that ford has um sort of looked at what makes the most popular crossovers slash suvs popular and taken that to heart and changed the explorer to really be a competitor you know to to Redefine you know, to try to be a benchmark in the class. It's, like I feel like this is a, a, a sort of a play to, to really take take leadership of of the class and sell a lot of them. So and I kind of hope they do. I'm excited to drive it.
2: Yeah, I mean you know they, to date you know since the original Explorer debuted in 1990 or 91, whatever it was, um, you know it's they claim it's been the best selling SUV of all time, uh, like 7.7 million units, and you know they expect those strong sales to continue with this new one when it, you know, when it goes on sale this summer, Um, you know, the, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot to like about this one. Um, You know, it's on that, like you say, it's on that same platform, that same uh, unibody rear drive platform as the uh, aviator that debuted at the LA auto show. Um, But, you know, with, with its own distinct Ford design and, and interior and everything the you know, getting a look at it last week, you know, it's definitely got more interior room. It's got better visibility out of it. the The pillars are definitely slimmer than those those thick columns that were in the uh, the current generation Explorer, which you know could be kind of hard to see around, especially the A pillars. Um, and you know, now you know, in addition to the. Um, The 2.3 liter base engine, you've got there's going to be a hybrid version, Um, you know, as with all of their new platforms, you know, Ford uh, and most manufacturers are doing what we call package protecting for electrification. So they're designing in spaces to package batteries in there. So, you know, in this one, uh, you know, unlike previous generation Ford hybrid vehicles, the battery doesn't take up any space in the cargo compartment. because well, it's frankly, it's not in there. It's right. it sits under the, under the uh, um, right hand second row passenger seat. And uh, you know, we, we won't, we won't be able to uh, talk about specs for that yet until next week. Um, they're going to reveal, they're going to reveal more of those details on Monday at the Detroit auto show. But uh, you know, it, 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 it should do, I think it should do really well. And the base price is only going up by like $400. And they're adding a lot of features to this. You know, they, they're going to have things like their co-pilot 360 package as standard equipment. So you get, you know, cross traffic alert and blind spot monitoring is standard. Um, the lane keeping and, and automatic emergency braking is standard. Unfortunately, you know, they opted not to, so the, the lane keeping and automatic emergency braking is, uses the, the forward facing camera. And unlike, you know, some vehicles that are out there now, you know, that are also including adaptive cruise control as standard equipment, um, you know, like, for example, the Toyota Camry and, and uh, Honda Accord and the, the 2019 civic and, and many other cars that, you know, are considerably more affordable. The, you know, Ford is still charging a, an extra premium for, if you want the radar and the adaptive cruise control and, you know, the additional functionality that comes with that. Um, but aside from that, you know, it's, it's got a lot of good stuff on it. And I, and I I think it'll probably do pretty well.
1: I, I agree. I, I It's interesting to see how they're positioning it as well. You know, they're using careful words like recrafted, you know, to talk about the, <laughs> the cabin and those. It's a subtle thing, but you picking up on that and they they want it to sound like it was, you know, f- fussed over by artisans. Um I think that that's sort of the impression I'm getting from how they're trying to to set it up here is like this. is We really like we think this car is very important and we we know that it's important to you. And so we we, you know, our best our our best people were on it. And it it makes me laugh a little bit, but I I don't I don't know that that's that's wrong. Um, I think that. uh, I think that it's it's such a competitive market, I, I when it comes time to replace the Grand Cherokee, which now has 100,000 miles on it. So it's it's getting old. Uh, (laughs) um, I will be very curious about the new Explorer because there were very few vehicles that sort of fit all my criteria and the the two that really fit them were the Durango and the, the Grand Cherokee. And they're not, perfect they're not without their issues and so it's great to have another option especially in this this price class because my assumption is that the explorer is going to be very competitively priced in all trim levels
2: yeah i i think so i I would expect so so
1: yeah that's uh it's a good time
2: (laughs) all right uh let's see what we got next uh okay so let's let's jump into ces then
1: yeah which was uh, the fact that there's car makers at CES still boggles my mind, although they've been there for quite a while.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the, it's funny, you know, the first time, you know, when I first joined auto blog, uh, my first, um, Detroit auto show as, uh, you know, covering the show as media was in 2007, January, 2007. And that was really the, you know, kind of the, the coming out for automakers at CES, Um, you know, Ford, uh, Ford's Mark Fields took the stage during a Microsoft keynote. So Ford didn't, you know, that year Ford didn't actually have their own keynote, but they came, Fields was on stage with Bill Gates during the Microsoft keynote to announce Sync. Sync. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the original announcement of Sync. And then the following year, which was the first time I went to CES, was at. Um, uh, G- that was when GM had their first big presence there, and that was when they did their the demos of the uh, autonomous Chevy Tahoe that won the DARPA Urban Challenge, and uh, Rick Wagner did actually did a keynote that year, um, and you know talked about all kinds of stuff.
1: Where did where did and he then, go
2: by the way? Rick Wagner. Yeah. Uh, I think he's on a couple of corporate boards now i mean you know he was he was fired from g m during the bankruptcy in two thousand nine
1: yeah I remember that, but i haven't heard of him haven't heard from him since and he was a yeah. he' was a sharp guy he's been fairly yeah
2: he's been fairly quiet since then
1: yeah oh, well counting his money
2: <laughs> yeah um so anyway uh, he um uh, uh you know and then ever since then there's been There was an increasing presence of automakers there for quite a long time. Although in the last couple of years, you know, some automakers have kind of had a somewhat reduced presence. Like for the last two years, GM has not had a booth. They have not had an official presence at CES at all. The last time they did was in 2016 when they first uh, kind of showed the production version of the Chevy Bolt and did some demo rides in the parking lot there. And then since then, they have not been back. And, you know, others have had, you know, kind of a more scaled down presence. They still have booths, but, you know, they don't always have press conferences like FCA was there, no press conference there, but they had a booth, um, you know, and Ford and, and others. So this, you know, um, what what it's cha- shifted into the last couple of years, there's been a lot more presence of suppliers there, you know, big suppliers like Bosch and Denso and Aptiv and, and many others. And, you know, they're showing off a lot of the technologies that are enablers for automated driving. You know, a lot of companies showing off their LIDAR and their software and their chips. And a lot of the meetings I had while I was there this week was with various chip vendors like NVIDIA and Intel and NXP and Qualcomm, you know, and every, you know, everybody wants a piece of the the pie, you know, for selling the processors that are going to be needed for automated driving, and they're, you know, what they're also increasingly doing is bundling in s- stacks of software, you know, to help the companies that want to use their chips, you know, get started, you know, get up and running more quickly. Especially Nvidia, you know, they announced their their Drive Autopilot package, which they labeled as, um, you know, the first complete turnkey, you know, level two plus automated driving solution, and it, it's. I wouldn't. I think Turnkey is a little bit, stre- you know, over <laughs> overstating the case. You know, they include a lot of the AI software that you need for perception and and also some of the stuff you know, for the interior for digital cockpit and driver monitoring and that. But you still have to add a whole lot of software on top of that, uh, as well as actually take the NVIDIA Xavier chip and put it onto a board. And, you know, package it, you know, to put it into a car. And that's what Continental and ZF both announced this week was, um, you know, their turnkey level two plus uh, packages that they're offering to to uh, to automakers starting next year uh, that use all the NVIDIA hardware and software. So, you know that that was a big that's a big part of what CES is now from an automotive perspective. It's
1: it's weird because it's a consumer electronics show. You wouldn't think that they would be there trying to sell their their solutions like some kind of trade show.
2: Yeah, I mean you you I was thinking about this yesterday on the plane flying home, and I think you know to if it was if if they were only looking at automotive. Then, yes, it would make more sense for them to be doing this stuff, showing this stuff at someplace like the SAE World Congress or any any number of automated driving conferences that happen throughout the year now. Um, but one of the, the things about what they're doing is, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the chips that they're that they're pushing for this stuff. Are things that are being repurposed from other applications as well, and you know, so there's there's a lot of commonality between what's happening here and a lot of the um, the consumer electronic stuff, like especially with with Qualcomm as an example. You know, a few weeks ago they announced their Snapdragon 855 chip, which is going to be the the core of most of the flagship Android phones that come out in 2019. But they, you know, at CES they announced you know their third generation automotive chip which is a, a derivative of that, you know, and is using a lot of the same uh, internal components and, you know, a, a lot of the software pieces for that stuff. And, you know, they're, they're also looking at, you know, where can we target, you know, some of these same, um, uh, you know, some of the same things we're doing for other non-automotive applications, especially like the LIDAR guys, you know, they're, you know, for LIDAR, you know, we're using it for automated driving, but, you you know, there's also applications for LIDAR, especially for security stuff, you know, for, you know, in conjunction with cameras, you know, having LIDAR scanning around an area, you know, for surveillance, you know, Quantergy systems, you know, which is a LIDAR vendor, you know, a lot of their business right now is actually, you know, in, you know, in security and, you know, they're They've been promoting, you know, their involvement with, you know, some of, you know, some of the surveillance along, you know, some of the border fence along the the southern border, you know, to detect, you know, when there's people approaching, you know, the fence or a wall, you know, or, you know, and any other kind of surveillance and security application. And the same thing goes for some, you know, many of the other vendors as well, like Velodyne and others. So that's I think that's kind of the main reason why you know they're going to ces you know because they're they're showing it you know the 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 big you know the thing they make the most noise about probably is the you know the autumn the autonomous driving stuff but they're also looking at it you know looking at how can we get more scale by using these the same these same systems for other applications
1: yeah i understand that um and maybe i think part of it too is like inducing demand to a degree too. like let let people know what's possible and what's out there and they'll start uh, demanding it. You know, they'll start asking manufacturers of, across all of this tech stuff to add these features. And so uh, maybe it's like, hey, look what's out there and you've seen these things that we can do. Now go 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 tell your friends that make phones and stuff
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> that you want it and we're ready to yeah, supply. Exactly. It it's just interesting so what else did you see at c at CES?
2: uh let's see uh, uh nissan um unveiled uh, an updated version of the leaf called the leaf plus wait, wait, wait. or in, in a f-
1: 30 something thousand dollar 200 mile electric car
2: yeah <laughs> imagine oh. that oh and you know what you can actually buy Today. one or you will yeah. be able to in a yeah, couple of months okay. yeah
1: Oh, a couple of months yeah, yeah they got to get through production hell
2: yeah
1: so. <laughs> well, i'm sorry yeah <laughs>
2: Like flipping a switch. Um,
1: so let's talk about the Leaf yeah. Plus, though. What what differentiates it from the Leaf?
2: Um, well, it's got uh, some nice blue accents on the uh, front and rear fascia, which is which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, vi- visually, that's about the only thing that actually distinguishes it is these is, is blue accents that they put on the, the front and rear. Um, you know, most of the, the important stuff is stuff you're not actually going to see, um, which, you know, the one other thing you will see is in the interior, the Leaf Plus uh, gets a larger 8-inch um, uh, screen, 8-inch display, uh, which hopefully is a better quality display than the one in the current Leaf, which it's kind of not very good, but... Um, but they, you know they didn't have it turned on on the the car we saw there, so I can't really judge. Plus, it wasn't outside during the daylight, which is where the current one really suffers. but um, the the important stuff is under the hood and under the floor. so the the leaf that you can buy right now uh, has a forty kilowatt hour battery pack and a, um, a one hundred and fifty mile range driving range. And uh, 150 horsepower, I guess actually like 147 horsepower electric motor. So for the Leaf Plus or in other markets outside of North America, it's called the Leaf E Plus. Um, It's for no particular reason. (laughs) Uh, Well, in America, that might be weird, uh, right? The Leaf E Plus kind of. Yeah, it could be, I guess. Anyway, um, for the plus, uh, the battery has been bumped by 50% to uh, more than 50% up to um, 62 kilowatt hours. Uh, range goes from that 150 miles to 226 miles, and the motor has been increased um, from 106, 111 kilowatts to 160 kilowatts. So it's it's about 210 horsepower now. So it's just slightly more than what you get out of a Bolt or the Hyundai Kona EV and the Nero EV. <clears throat> so it's you know it's right. It's going to be competitive, right in the same ballpark. As you know, the slew of other you know thirty seven thousand dollar two hundred mile plus EVs, which really Nissan they needed to do this with the Leaf, you know, to to remain competitive. They also put a more powerful charger in it, so um, you know it can now charge at uh, seventy kilowatts uh, on DC fast charging as opposed to the fifty that it previously did. So um you know charges faster but because you have a bigger battery um the overall charging time to go from empty to full on dc fast charging will be still be about the same um but uh yeah when you when you if you can find a 100 plus kilowatt hour or 100 plus kilowatt uh charging station you'll get faster charging with the, the Leaf well, plus, plus also
1: if you go for a Leaf the thing i love about it is that it's been around now for 10 years so almost they, yeah they, They've got it worked out, um,
2: you know. Yeah, no, it you know Leafs Leafs are pretty reliable. They don't they don't have any problems. They know how to build them. You know, keep all the panels straight, and <laughs> have all the colors matching, and everything. <laughs> <They're> such jerks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, you know, you, you got to call it like you see it. You know, we're agents of reality. That's true. That's so, true. As Mister Roy likes right. to say. Uh, Speaking of which, I ran into him on Sunday too. Was so. he on a scooter? Uh, no, he was, uh, getting ready to go for a ride in one of Aptiv's, uh, automated driving, uh, BMWs
1: Uh, with a, with a human
2: safety driver. Of course, of course, (laughs) is there any other way? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) not, not right now, at least,
1: but I mean, they're working on it. That that was, that was a big thing at CES. Um, let's see other stuff that, uh, that popped up. There was like, um, uh, the, the Hyundai elevate concept.
2: Yeah. So the Elevate uh, is kind of an interesting idea. I mean, this is really just a a pure design concept. Um, You know, they, Hyundai worked with a design firm in Detroit to create what they call an ultimate mobility vehicle. Um, You know, so one of the, one of the issues with, you know, one of the, the things that everybody promotes about automated vehicles is the idea that it will enable mobility for people who can't drive um you know so whether that might be the physically disabled or the elderly or the young um but for some of those people um not being able to drive is just one part of the problem you know there's also the problem of actually getting into the vehicle um and so you know and then you know of course there's all kinds of other applications for vehicles where um you know going over rough terrain or you know dangerous places where yeah, you, know, you need something beyond the traditional vehicle. And so what Hyundai developed with, uh, with this uh, design firm, uh, Sundberg Farrar, and it's funny, um, you know, they, they had not given any indication before the show that they were going to unveil this concept. And it turned out that, um, the guy sitting next to me on the flight out to Las Vegas on Sunday morning, uh, was David Byron, the uh, design manager. On this concept, and he was on stage during the Hyundai press conference on on the following day, and we he was telling me all about this thing, and you know showed me pictures of it, which was pretty cool. Did, um, did you tell him that it looks like but, an um,
3: app?
1: You know, the start the Star Wars kind of.
2: Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think he he knew okay. that. So you know the 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 basic the the basic premise of this thing is that you know they wanted to take you know the the central body and be able to allow it to go over pretty much anything, you know, to, um, you know, so in its base position, uh, you know, drop down, you know, it's rides on a conventional coil spring suspension and, you know, dr- drives like a, a, like a regular vehicle, um, you know, with, um, electric motors in the wheels. Uh, and it's fully automated. You know, it's kind of a pod like thing and it's got doors on multiple sides. So, you know, for example, you could uh, open up the, the rear door and, you know, roll a wheelchair or, you know, something, you know, rack full of cargo or whatever right into the back. Or, you know, uh, if you're using it as a search and rescue vehicle, you know, take a gurney or a stretcher right in through the back. Um Or alternatively, uh, when you need to go over something other than a basic road, uh, it can lift up, you know, all four, you know, the the body is suspended on four articulating legs, you know, that the wheels are attached to the end of. And in the joints of these legs are this new kind of electric motor from a a, a company that I'm, I'm. Not familiar with yet. I'm still looking into these guys. But whereas a traditional electric motor, you know, you've got a rotor and stator that, you know, are concentric with each other and, you know, the rotor rotates with, you know, within inside the stator. The, um this is uh, actually like two disks that are running parallel to each other. So think of it, if you know how a torque converter works, where you've got uh, two halves of a torque converter and the uh, hydraulic fluid in the transmission fluid in between them. And as one turns, you know, the, the viscosity of the fluid pulls the other one along. Yeah. This works in a kind of a similar fashion. So you've got these two parallel discs, you know, and it can switch the electric flux uh, as, you know, on the, the one disc, you know, in order to make the second disc go. And, um, you know, that we've got, you know, traditional configured, you know, um, electric motors that do flux switching like this. But in this one, because of the way it's, it's uh, configured, you can have a lot more, fields uh you know where you can switch the flux and they claim that you can get about three times as much torque out of this thing from the same size and weight motor as from a traditional motor design and it's more efficient i bet
1: if you're careful Um, you could even play back your cassette tapes with it possibly yeah (laughs) well that's what it sounds like to me it sounds like a tape head you know it's it's, uh the, the the where the gaps are in the the windings seem like they're they're on the face of the disc
2: yeah, except that you know, there's no there's no physical contact right, right. there. So
1: so as you pass yeah. it over, the the flexibility of one, uh, it, it you know uses reluctance in in the other to, yeah. Anyway,
2: I'm no EE, so you know, matter where when, when they first started when they first started on this project. You know, they were actually using an electrohydraulic system to articulate this thing. And once they found these motors, they switched to using these motors. So they actually have little versions of these motors in each of the joints of the legs. So what it does is it allows this thing to, to raise up in the air. So you have the pod up in the air on these legs. And then this thing can either roll along on that, you know, with Massive articulation, you know, so it can roll over. Yeah, you know, and they showed a simulate yeah, a simulation of it going over the Rubicon Trail, uh, you know, like a jeep, you know, with these legs just articulating all over the place as it rolls along, or you can also have it walk in either you know a lizard-like motion or a mammalian motion with the legs you know depending on the kind of terrain you're going over you know and it can climb stairs and so that you know one of the the images that they had you know showed it uh you know actually climbing up you know with the back end you know walking up the stairs you know of a of a brownstone you know so that you know somebody could roll right out the door you know, right into the vehicle. And then it's, you know, it smoothly walks, walks back down the stairs. So it's a fascinating idea I and mean, it's going to be a long while before we ever see anything like this on the road, but they, they have some functioning, um, scale models of this thing that they were, that they were showing off. And, you know, it'll, it'll be cool to, to see more of this and see how this progresses over the yeah, well, years. Yeah. Well, I think
1: that's what we need is we need ideas, um, that will become solutions. You know, it, there's because there's a vast array of of sort of opportunities and problems and solutions to to solve those things and you know the vehicle types are are one issue and that engineering and design and thinking can't stop it needs to continue and we also need to think of you know, okay. Now we've got the, the vehicles. Where do they fit? How do they work best? Um, you know, because we we talk about you know the problem with the like uh, TNCs and the cars are deadheading all the time, and that's not efficient. It's making traffic worse. So, like, you need different cars to fit different needs, and so it's it's cool to see that, that that thinking is happening.
2: Yeah. No. Absolutely. And you know this this whole this whole Hyundai project was um, managed out of. Uh, their Silicon Valley lab, which they call the cradle, uh, which is an actually an acronym for something that I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but you know, the cradle, you know, is kind of their, their research lab in, in Silicon Valley, but it also is the home of their, um, their, um, uh, venture capital army, you know, where they, they invest in a lot of interesting, uh, startup companies. So it, it'll be, it'll be, I'll be curious to see how this progresses over the next few years.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I really want to know more about those motors. Those sound really, really interesting.
2: Yeah, that's thats definitely something I'm going to find out more about. Cool.
1: Cool. Well, uh, I think that's everything that we had on our list. Other than, yeah, oh, no. so we PAVE, had a couple of the questions. Campaign. Um,
2: yeah, uh, we could talk about okay. that next time. It's a thing. You should look let up. Let's hit a couple of questions and then, because you know, we're already running over an hour.
1: You're trying um, to hear me. I get it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. So, uh, we had a couple of questions. Um, first one from some guy named Chris, oh, guy. I don't know. I, I, I can't remember where yeah. I know that guy from. I've, I've name's familiar. But anyway. Uh, he, he asked, uh, GM's just announced plan to make Cadillac, the nexus of their EV efforts, a good idea, or should they be doing something else? Example, pushing electrification more across the board. Um, so, yeah, you know, for those that haven't heard, you know, GM uh, put out a, a an update for uh, uh, Wall, St- Wall Street folks, you know, uh, just updated guidance, you know, saying that, yeah, they're on track to hit their targets for 2018 and 2019. And as part of that uh, announcement, they also said that going forward, Cadillac is going to be the focus of their electrification efforts, um, which I think in some, to some degree makes some sense, um, you know, I think it's not going to be exclusive. It's not going to be the exclusive home of electric vehicles at GM. Uh, it can't be, you know, because uh, you know they need they need more volume than what they're going to get out of Cadillac. Um, but in terms of launching new stuff, you know, and debuting platforms and technology, you know, I think it makes sense to to go with Cadillac, much as you know Volkswagen Group is doing with Audi, and um, you know. Because if you can, if you can sell, you know, some premium electric vehicles, especially now, because um, in December, GM hit the 200,000 sales threshold for plug in vehicles, which means that starting in April they're you know, like Tesla they're they've hit the phase out period for um, federal tax incentives. Uh, so starting in April, the, the maximum tax incentive drops from 7,500 to 3,750. And so we're probably going to see. You know, around that time a price drop on the bolt uh, to compensate for that I mean they're, they're going to need to in order to stay competitive with all the the other um, new uh, entries in the marketplace like the Leaf plus and the Kona EV um, but you know at the same time you know the company needs to make money so they've got a better chance of selling EVs profitably from Cadillac than they do from Chevrolet um and you know this sunday night you know uh in the the opening of the uh the Detroit Auto Show Cadillac's going to have an event uh in Detroit where they're um they're going to be showing the new XT6 3-row crossover but i've heard uh from one source at least that um they're expected to also show another new vehicle which may turn out to be the first um you know battery electric Cadillac and it'll be the the first of this wave of of 20 uh, zero emission vehicles that Cadillac promised about a year and a half ago uh, coming by 2023.
1: Well, it kind of, like, uh, that's sort of what they need to do with Cadillac. It needs to be positioned that way, I think. And, and,
2: you know, it. Yeah. And, I mean, the brand, the brand, frankly, has struggled, you know, and so they, you know, they need to have, you know, they need to do something well, different.
1: As much as we love all of the the performance Cadillacs, you know, the, uh, the V series is a niche car and they need to attract people who are looking for something different in their niche car, you know, larger, larger yeah. niche, uh, more like a notch, right? They, they want the, the EV buyer. And I think that's that's where they should take it. And your point about, I think, selling it with the luxury brand makes it more profitable or like closer to profitability. That makes sense. I mean, it's why we've seen EVs start at the top and, and become more affordable. Uh, as, as they become more adopted, you know, the people who can afford them are the ones that can take the risk. And so that's why they, they start off as a premium product. so, and I think that's, that's the pattern that, that should go on at a GM as well. Uh, get the stuff up and running and then get, get propagated out to the, the different brands, um, after Cadillac has, it, and it gives Cadillac something unique to sell too for that, that period of time, which they badly need. <laughs> Although they're apparently they're having a good year, yeah. especially in China.
2: Yeah, certainly China, they're doing they're doing better than they are here. And, you know, the same same goes for Lincoln. You know, Lincoln's Lincoln's having some good success in China as well.
1: Although China's car market is apparently off, too. So. Yeah. Wow. There's going to be some interesting global auto stuff uh, as 2019 rolls on, given uh, <laughs> economy and trade.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a challenging year. No doubt about that. All right. Uh, then the other question we had from, uh, from Cody Lusnia uh, was, uh, what's your take on the newest Jeep Wrangler nearly failing, getting a one-star rating on the Euro NCAP test?
1: Yeah, that's not good. Not, not good. But I mean, don't you expect the Wrangler to be kind of a meat grinder if you hit anything with it?
2: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, I think that from looking at the, the report, you know, you know, while the... The actual um, results, you know, on the crash test dummies, you know, was not terrible, um, you know, across the board. Um, One of the things they noted in there was that the especially I think in the uh, small offset rigid barrier test, the um, the bar that goes across the the bulkhead behind the dashboard separated from the A pillar. Uh, And so, you know, they, they said that, you know, while at the speeds that the tests were done um you know it did okay not great but okay um if you know in anything more severe or in different kinds of, of crashes it might actually um fall far short of you know of what a lot of other vehicles can do so it was you know it was very marginal and thus they get and plus also it, it doesn't have some of the um it doesn't offer a de- uh, automatic emergency braking, uh, and so they they gave it a one star rating.
1: Yeah, and I can understand giving it a ding for not having the automatic braking. I mean, I, I I understand also that maybe that's there for you know to keep the price down or some argument because of the off road nature of the Wrangler. Um, I, I can't really imagine what that argument would be off the top of my head, but.
2: The, I mean, Well, I mean, the reality is, you know, everybody knows that, you know, they are, that's, this is one of the criteria that they're including in evaluations yeah. now of, uh, of new vehicles and, you know, everybody is moving towards, um, you know, offering, you know, having automatic emergency braking as well, standard the, equipment.
1: The, the Wranglers uses a car for the most part, like, yes, yeah. it's very, very capable, but, you know, uh, figure out a way to do it, even with like, I don't know, put a camera based system in there or something,
2: um, well, and that's what most of the systems are. They're camera based, you know, um, and perhaps, you know, what, you know, one of the things in the Wrangler, because of the nature of what it's capable of off road, you know, maybe one of the things you need to do is, uh, you know, have um, an on off switch, you know, or a disable switch, you know, because when you're, you know, going off roading. You know, the automatic emergency braking, I could see how that could potentially be oh, problematic. I can tell
1: you in traffic uh, in- when you try to make a tight lane change at high speed and those yeah. systems just nail the brakes in the middle of your lane change. <laughs> like, holy shit, I'm going to spin out. What are you doing to me, car? Uh, yeah. I can only imagine off road. It'd be worse. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so you know maybe you know when it's you know certain modes you know certain like maybe four wheel drive low or something you know it it disables it you know so that you know when you're crawling around over the boulders or you know through through a ravine you you don't get that automatic braking. But you know what? Also, most of the hardware is there, right? Yeah, I mean, and you know the fact is that the cost of the cost of that system, you know, the Wrangler is not a cheap vehicle, and the cost of that hardware is not huge. I mean, you know, we're talking under. I'm just
1: thinking now, like. It's got, um, hill descent control now. So yeah, all that stuff is there. But that's that's
2: <laughs> Well, no, because I mean, hill descent control is using wheel speeds and accelerometers. And right. But sensors. it
1: can, it can deploy the, I mean, the it, brake hardware.
2: Oh yeah. It can. Yeah. It can certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's been able to do that for a long time. I mean, it's had hill descent control and traction control. So that's, that's not an issue. It's just, you know, deciding, you know, based on the camera sensor, you know, when, when you're about to hit something and, and uh, you know, hitting the brakes uh, automatically. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, I was a little bit surprised that this newest Wrangler did that poorly on the Euro NCAP. And I expect that it's not going to do a whole lot better on the the um, North American version either. Um, you know, our tests are they're, they're pretty well aligned now. It used to be that the Euro tests were harder, but. I don't. I don't really think that's the case. I think it's it's pretty well harmonized now.
2: Yeah, they've 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 gotten a lot closer between the official NCAP tests that NHTSA does and the um, the IIHS tests. You know, because NHTSA doesn't do the small impact rigid barrier, for example, which is part of Euro NCAP. cap, but IIHS um, does that. You know, as part of their uh, top safety pick evaluations. And so, you know, manufacturers, you know, increasingly are trying to hit both of those targets.
1: Yeah. Um, the, and the, apparently the Jimny did better. So it's like in terms of like <laughs> similar vehicles, I <laughs> guess is what I'm trying to say. Like if they're both pretty yeah. new,
2: and, they're both. And that, that's that's not that's not a good sign. No.
1: <laughs> and especially because the Jimny's smaller, so it has less room to manage all that uh, energy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but don't hit stuff with your Wrangler. That's been a rule for a long time.
2: Absolutely. All right. So you got you got an interview, I right?
1: Did. Uh i I spoke with um Jonathan Klinger from Haggerty, because it turns out that uh millennials and generation Xers uh are now sort of the driving force in um collector cars and and classic cars. Uh there's just we've hit critical mass. We're getting old enough <laughs>
2: that we want we want those cars. We we, we may have a little bit of disposable Maybe. income. but what it
1: means is uh the cars that you're seeing he was calling it the radwood effect which i think is a really good way to to uh sort of encapsulate it you know the, the cars that we like are different than the old standards you know 57 chevys and uh i don't know the mustangs camaros like those cars are they're always cool uh they they continue to remain popular but there's a lot of new and sort of weird stuff that is coming up and you know partially personally, from a personal level it's partially driven by the fact that none of us can afford the old stuff like that anyway all the boomers have them and they want ungodly sums of money and honestly yeah. i don't don't want to be my dad I, I want stuff that i thought was cool so we're we're driving the prices of things from the 90s you know uh you just we talked a little bit about the uh the supra turbo that went for hundred and twenty thousand dollars or something ridiculous so uh it was really it was a fun interview and um you know haggerty
2: and i I like jonathan he's he's a good guy too uh he runs communications for haggerty and and that's haggerty's an interesting company they specialize in doing insurance for classic cars yeah and
1: i was just gonna say they're more than that actually they're they're kind of like an enthusiast outpost um you don't have to have a car insured with them to to you know, go and they, they're producing content and stuff. It's, it's an interesting company and they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're run by people like us. And I don't normally expect that I'm going to talk to my insurance guys about how much I love cars. So.
2: Yeah. Well, and you know, as you said, you know, they're producing a lot of content, you know, the, uh, the Haggerty magazine is an excellent magazine. If you, if you like classic cars and they, over the last couple of years, they have put together an amazing staff there, uh, led by Larry Webster, who uh, used to be uh, at Road and Track and Car and Driver before that, and Popular Mechanics. Um, and they've got people like uh, Joe DiMacio, uh Mike Austin, um, uh, Aaron um, – oh, I can't I think of his last name now uh, – used to be at Motor Trend.
1: Um, I, I don't well, know. Motor Trend, the one with the track uh, that runs downhill?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway they've they've got they've got some amazing content that they're doing there, so if, you know if you're interested in uh, in classic cars, definitely recommend reading uh the haggerty magazines and a lot of those articles are online yeah, it too was,
1: um you know this is an example uh, i think it was mike austin who wrote it uh haggerty isn't that where they published the the um the story about the they found the bullet mustang yeah yes and that yep. was a that was a really really well done piece um so yeah if you like that kind of stuff, seek it out.
2: Yeah. And you know, one, one other cool thing about uh, Haggerty, you know, one of the things they do, they're based up in Traverse city in Northern Michigan. And, you know, one of the, you know, something that's unique about them, uh, you know, insuring classic cars is always, you know, something that's kind of a fraught yeah. <laughs> uh, because you never really know what the, the true value is. And so you know, what they, what they do is, you know, they offer plans where essentially you agree on the, the value of the car yeah. with them and, you know, they set a price. And if you like that, that's good. And, you know, then, you know, if something happens to the car, there's no arguments, you know, they, you know, if you want to take the payout, they, they pay it out and, you know, they, they take, you know, they'll, they can take ownership of the vehicle if they, you know, if they pay out on something that's totaled and, you know, what they will do is, you know, in some cases, depending on, you know, the condition of the vehicle, they will take it and, you know, bring it back to, uh, to Traverse city and do a restoration on it. And, you know, they work with, you know, with, um, you know, people that are learning how to do this stuff, you know, and they, you know, they employ them, you know, to do restorations on these vehicles, you know? And so, you know, I've seen some of the ones that they've done, you know, there, there's, there's this, um, a couple of years ago, we saw this uh, 61 Plymouth Grand Fury or Plymouth Fury convertible that was um, totaled during uh, Hurricane Sandy. It was uh, an owner in New Jersey, and they took that and did a complete ground up restoration on the thing because you know, the, the owner took the payout on it. So they took the car and they you know, the thing is just immaculate. It's unbelievable. So it's a very interesting company, the way they operate.
1: It was a great interview, and and hopefully we can talk more with uh, the folks from Haggerty because they they continue to to make interesting stuff, uh, you know, good talking points. So I'll I'll tack that in here, and then uh, you know that'll end the show.
2: Okay, and uh, we'll talk to you next week.
1: I'm talking with Jonathan Klinger from Hagerty Insurance or uh, Haggerty Worldwide, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, um, and so I know you folks as. As insurance, but there's more to it than that. So, can you sort of tell us a little bit about what what Haggerty does?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, thanks so much for having me on, and uh, excited to talk about this stuff. So, Haggerty as a business, the the simplest way of explaining it is we're an automotive brand, and everything we do is centered around collector cars or fun vehicles. Uh, a lot of people do know us from the specialty insurance side, but we also publish Hagerty Magazine and, and produce a valuation guide, the Hagerty Price Guide, which is, you know, think of it as like similar to the Kelly Blue Book, but for uh, the most commonly traded collector vehicles. Uh, and then actually, most recently, uh, we rebranded the membership side of our organization to be called the Hagerty Drivers Club. And that is, uh, that, that's something that we're pretty excited about, and, and you don't have to have an insurance policy uh, to be a part of that. And so that's um, members-only events around the country, that's um, more in-depth access to our valuation database, uh, as well as uh, the magazine that we send out.
1: Yeah, and that, actually your magazine has one of the highest circulations of uh, car magazines in the country.
4: Yeah, yeah, we're more than six hundred thousand at this point, and and continuing to grow. So yeah, it's that that's been funny. That that started out a little more than a decade ago, literally as a quarterly newsletter, <laughs> um, you know, kind of stapled down the middle and sent out to to policyholders, and it's evolved um, well beyond that. And and that's the biggest differentiator of the Hagerty Drivers Club. Uh, before in order to receive that you did have to have a vehicle that was insured by Hagerty and then opt into what was then called Hagerty Plus and a number of people kept coming to us that uh, asking for it, and it just became very obvious that uh, there's an awful lot of people out there in North America, and in the world for that matter, that that love cars, have an interest in cars. They don't necessarily own a vintage car at that time, at this point in their life, and they may again at some point. But uh, you know, why why limit them to the fun of actually having to own a vehicle versus they can still participate?
1: Yeah, no, and it, 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 that was actually something I wanted to touch on was the Haggerty Drivers Club because that that is new and. And you you get discounts on on uh you know from from other sort of partners with you and, and
4: uh yeah yeah coker tire uh reliable transport california car cover uh the handful of automotive brands like that um and in the most cases it's ten percent off in some cases a little bit more um but yeah it's it's um we've we've had some really great partners sign on with that and and so far that's been quite successful on, on both sides so that
1: and that answers a lot of questions that uh folks who are interested in owning a a classic or a collector car uh which the definition of is sort of evolving, and that's why we're talking today exactly uh, but th- that it it answers a lot of those questions because the idea of a, like well standard insurance for those is is different, and then the valuation uh it gets sticky you know blue book value on something older is generally. Not going to pay you out what it's worth in in that you know that sense. So, so there's there's a reason to go with a, a more specialty insurance carrier. Mm-hmm. And, absolutely. Uh, it, just getting to be part of that community, I think is uh, mm-hmm. that's great. It sounds like a lot of fun.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And and everything that uh, you know, if you interact with us, read about our stuff, everything we do is uh, you know it's all around the love of driving, uh, and and that's yeah you know, and of course, it's obviously the cars, and we talk about the love of the cars and in cool cars and life's too short to drive boring cars and all that fun stuff, but really it's if you sit and think about it it's it's tied to people that enjoy driving because that's when you get the most fun out of these cars is when you actually drive them.
1: I completely agree <laughs> yeah uh, so as uh your your latest um valuation tool uh, update, I guess you you noticed that for the the first time. Uh, ever, Generation X and and Millennial folks are uh, going to outnumber if uh, uh, Baby Boomers, who's sort of like driven the mm-hmm. collector car uh, market, a classic and collector car market, and just like what is and what isn't a classic, what's cool, what's not. It's been this this long shadow of Boomer culture, and that
4: that has changed. Um, yeah. No, that's something we're pretty excited about because for a long time there's just been this common myth out there that uh, the car hobby was going to die with the baby boomer generation. Because for quite a long time, it has been largely driven by the baby boomer generation. It was a large generation. They, you know, it's long past the time when they started that as a generation started coming into an age of more disposable income, and of course that was, you know, pre-recession. What drove a lot of the values as high as they did, uh, particularly on American muscle cars, in addition to European sports and racing vehicles, Um, and so there's just been a lot of attention given to the interest of the baby boomer generation when it comes to cars, and for good reason, and so then a lot of people would just jump to this conclusion, well, are future generations going to be as interested? And so in 2018, market activity of the millennial generation and Gen X generation combined eclipsed that of the baby boomers and older for the first time.
1: And, and um, so, they're, they're interested,
4: clearly. Um, yes. But they're not interested in necessarily the same things. Not necessarily. No, and that's the, that's the fun part when you start to dive down. To, if you look at the top, uh, the, you know, the most uh, popular vehicles by generation, uh, vehicles that don't surprise you, uh, the Ford Mustang, the Corvette, vehicles like that, they transcend all generations. There's, you know, there's an awful lot of Mustangs out out there that have been produced. Um, and and anyone, any living driver has been impacted by the Mustang or the Corvette or in some cases the Camaro at some point. And so just in terms of numbers, those still are the most popular across the generations. But when you start to get down before, the, you know, below those top four or five that's where things start to get interesting and you start to notice differences and the one that jumped out to me the single biggest difference comes from uh, a british sports car versus an asian sports car and that being a baby boomer or older is uh, many times more likely to have a british sports car uh, whereas the Gen X and Millennials are significantly more likely to have an Asian sports car. If you're talking about that below $50,000 and, and really in many cases uh, below $30,000, just that entry-level, nimble, fun-to-handle, easily-to-modify car, for the older generations, that was the British sports car. For the younger generations, it's an Asian sports car, and that is a significant difference.
1: Well, you know, that's really interesting because I, I, I'm, I'm a 77 model, so I'm sort of right at the tail of Generation okay. X, and just like okay. right at the well, beginning.
4: You, um, exactly, well, you're just a few years older than me. I'm, a, I'm an 81 model. Oh, so. the, there you go. So yeah.
1: what what I find interesting and, and sort of like illustrative of that is uh, – Yes, there were British cars around when I was a kid, you know, the TR6s and, and, um, you know, Spitfires and and stuff like that, but they were getting increasingly rare. Like we're talking about when I started coming of age and really noticing cars in the late 80s and, and definitely in the early 90s, those things were not around. Um, and, mm-hmm. and they had a reputation to begin with and, <laughs> yeah. and the ones you could find, you had to be very careful. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to find a rust bucket and stuff. Cause most of them mm-hmm. were convertibles. Um, mm-hmm. cheap speed for us was Toyotas and, yeah. you know, Hondas. And it was, it was all of those inexpensive cars that didn't get any respect. And now clearly they're getting a lot of respect. We just saw a Supra sell for $120,000. Yes, I know.
4: <laughs> we were watching that play by play yesterday. <laughs> It's like wow, we have a we have a six figure Supra. Yeah, yeah and I have feelings about that, but um, uh, I mean, I think that's that's just an awful lot of money it, it, for that car. But I know it's bittersweet. We're we're the same way. It's like wow, you know, it's great to see that those cars getting that respect. But it's now to your point, it's they're no longer cheap speed, and they haven't been for a while. A Toyota Supra Turbo, but yeah, they're no longer cheap speed. So is
1: that sort of like one of the bigger? trends you're seeing is is the shift to to asian cars what else are you you seeing in terms of of just tastes and and i i guess research that people are doing where where does it lie uh,
4: the other biggest uh difference is uh a what you would think of as a traditional car and i'm using air quotes versus a pickup <laughs> or, versus a pickup or suv so the younger generations are are many times more likely to be looking at, at a first-generation Bronco, early Blazers, uh, pickups of all generation. You know, you're referencing, uh, bring a trailer. Uh, you know, these later model '90s and even early 2000s Toyota pickups that are selling for shockingly high money. Of course, they're in really good shape. Um, so yeah, so pickups and SUVs definitely uh, differentiate the younger generations from the older ones. And if you if you think about it, it it's it's fairly obvious. So people. Our age and younger compared to our parents' generation, we have just grown up in an SUV dominated society. Oh, sure. And once you yeah. started into the late 80s. And so it just kind of, that certainly has to have some play, you know, some impact of that. But then you also look at um, the logistics of it, though. A An early SUV, for the most part, and certainly a lot of pickups. They're still very affordable. They're very simple to work on. Certainly the American-made brands parts are very readily available. So to people who enjoy tinkering and getting their hands dirty, a suv or a pickup they're simple mechanically they're an easy restoration project especially for a first timer and so there's a lot of reasons driving that um and you also are starting to see this generational shift from the original owners who purchased those vehicles is primarily for a form of utility it was it was the work truck or you know there was a real reason why they had uh, a, a four wheel drive vehicle and and now the people who are purchasing them, especially when you can find rust free examples out west or down south, you know to them it's their fun extra cool vehicle
1: yeah well and i i think you you hit the nail on the head uh with the the ability to easily work on them you know and that's where mm. that's where V8s went and and rear wheel drive and stuff throughout the 80s and 90s uh, when they were mm. coming out of uh, the sort of regular passenger car there's that big big shift i mean i'd i'd love to see the valuations i i kind of wouldn't actually not i think about it but you know <laughs> stuff that's cuz we like weird stuff you know uh, i i'm a real you know Z twenty four Cavalier enthusiast. I think that's
4: a fantastic car. <laughs> you uh, know, I I drove one I in high school, and I can't remember if it was a prime or homecoming date, but my girlfriend's mother had a red Z twenty four Cavalier with a three point one five speed, and we Ooh. took that to the dance, and I just thought that was the fastest car I'd ever driven.
1: Yeah, I mean it. It, it just it'll peel the front tires right off the wheels. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> right into the ditch. Yeah, I mean <laughs> it, yes, but it, it's those those. Did, didn't get any any respect and and now just having lived with them you you find that you've got this like colloquial knowledge of these cars that are like oh what's a what's a citation x11 and you're like oh let me tell you <laughs> 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 these were cool the, the L, you know mercury ln7 and and stuff like that uh that just like they're 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 very rare
4: so yeah so so my uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit of insight into my Level of nerdum for cars. <laughs> so when I so I, I turned 16 and 98, that's when I started driving, and and I I grew up in a fairly rural area in northern Illinois. A lot of my family farms, and so I was around a lot of pickups and and all of that. And I didn't want a truck as my first vehicle. I wanted something a little more fun to drive, and I really wanted. A Mustang, you know, 5.0 Mustang, 87 to about 93. About Everybody MCT'd, did, or yeah. or LX, but but I couldn't afford one with the V8, you know. So I, so the only ones in my option were the four-cylinder examples, and I just couldn't quite wrap my head around that. And so what I, what I ended up with was a 91 Mercury Cougar that had the optional 5.0 in it, and so in my my mind, I convinced it that that, that was my poor man's Mustang, and uh, and yeah. drove it for. Uh, not quite two years, and I was proud of it at the time. Sold it, and moved on, and and uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, was not searching, but just stumbled across a a Chrysler dealer in Southern Michigan. Their website, they had a, a trade a '91 Mercury Cougar with the 50 with 35,000 original miles. On it. Someone <laughs> bought it, loved it, never drove it in the wintertime. And as you can imagine, they're not worth anything. They were asking way too much. And over the course of about eight months, um, of me of calling that salesman about every six weeks and reinforcing my offer of what it was worth, uh, they they finally sold it to me. And uh, so I now have that. Uh, you know, a low mileage example of what my first car was. I mean, and congratulations. That's yeah. It. <laughs> no, it, it's been kind of fun. It's also a good case study. If you need an example of how good cars have improved in the last uh, 25 years go take that car for a drive down the interstate <laughs> because really? it's just well yeah there's nothing wrong with it it's not worn out with the low miles everything works flawlessly it's as they as you would expect it to be but it's just it's just interesting it, it it's 75 or 80 miles an hour which is interstate speeds these days if you're going to traffic it just requires a little more driving um, you know, they're just not quite as tight. The suspension's not quite as refined and, and, uh, but you know, in 25 years evolution, you expect things to get better, but it's just an interesting case study, um, of, of the difference. But yeah, so now you're going to say, I'm going to drive that to Radwood in Detroit. In oh, September, good for you. So Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we've gotten way off track. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that, that's okay. We we can bring it back on track. Uh, I think, you know, we, we, we've sort of covered pretty easily, uh, you know, what are some up and coming classics to watch? I think we we just we hit that with some of the you know, the rare Fox bodies and the the, <laughs> the that. Asian cars and stuff. Um, so you know, another idea I was I was wondering about is there was a significant shift earlier when the boomers really started to come into the mm-hmm. classic car market. It, a lot of the pre-war stuff, it, it just it. it its values dropped significantly. All that knowledge is like the guys who are into that stuff are, are in their seventies. Well, boomers are in their seventies. Those, those guys mm-hmm. are even older and yeah. nobody knows what some of those things are uh, anymore, you know? Uh, so is that actually going to to start to bite uh, stuff like even model A's and model T's, you know, the, you know what they are, but they're not, they're not, the enthusiast base isn't there anymore.
4: Yeah. Well, so, mo- you know, the model A in particular is interesting Um is, they actually have held steady um, because someone who is interested in a pre-war car experience that is the entry point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, because they're they're very I, I own a Model A. Um, I have a 1930 Model A uh, two-door sedan, and and I and I don't currently, but I have owned Model Ts in the past. Um, and a Model A, you can. well, I always like to say, and I love them both, but to to the average person, a Model A, you can drive a Model T. It's a hobby. Um, yeah, you know, you yeah. You take everything you know about driving and throw it out the wheel and, <laughs> and, and start over and, and, and that's where the fun is in my in my opinion. But uh um you know, so the model A's they're doing okay, but to your point, uh yes, when you when you saw that transition from the silent generation, pre boomers, however you wanna uh refer to them, to the baby boomers, significant pre war cars, they've held well, they still do well, they're continuing to go up in value, but when you get your get away from your very common Fords and Chevys to just a four-door sedan of whatever it was, even a Dodge Brothers from the 20s four-door sedan, like those values at best over a 20-year time, they've just kind of held flat. Um, and that's, that's assuming the car's been maintained in good shape. You know, you certainly, the money it would take to restore one of those vehicles if it was in poor condition, um, you're gonna be quite upside down in your overall investment in it yeah um but that but i would say there is a little bit of difference because if you go back to that generation the, to your earlier point the source of knowledge was held with the people who grew up with those cars and that transfer of knowledge really only happened at the car club level because we're talking pre-internet time so the big reason people joined car clubs were the the two big reasons was um access to um uh, parts and technical information, um, and then of course the social aspect. But of course now you fast forward in the in, in the internet age. Um, for in many cases that has taken care of that as far as both access to the information, technical specs, as well as you know where do you where do you find the parts. And so we're not as worried about that transition from the boomers to the younger generations being as much of a loss of information. And by the way, also there have been enough cases of younger people who have emerged as specialists that that truly know certain pre-war cars. And so it's not all been lost, but but yes, it's it's. I don't think it's going to be as much of a shock um, going from the boomers to the younger generations. And and by the way, the, the boomer generation is still a very large generation. Uh, they're still a very significant part of the collector car market. And so what this data isn't necessarily saying that the boomers are going away. It's What it does prove, though, is the fact that younger generations are interested in cars, and particularly the millennials, as they're getting to the point where they're able to purchase um a vehicle besides their basic transportation needs they are interested, and so the the to us it's a good thing it's a great thing for the car community,
1: yeah, well, I think that that's that's positive like a positive development you know it's encouraging to see that all of the doom and gloom about hey kids just aren't interested in cars or, or younger folks aren't yeah. interested in cars and we're saying no mm-hmm. no they they are and and especially yeah. when you start to to buy a house and stuff you know when you're 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 doing all of the things that uh, require a car you, you, your your tastes and your interests will will sort of naturally turn they're just going to turn to different mm-hmm. things um
4: yeah but but there's there's also some other interesting differences so usage uh, is much different younger generations actually they they drive their cars more than the older generations um, and some of that is you know if you think about it if 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 you're buying a, you know, an early Miata, for example, that's a very drivable car. You can yeah. drive it anywhere. You can, you can, you can, you know, you're not a hindrance to traffic. Um, you know, it's not like you're breaking the old car out of the barn for a, um, just a dedicated weekend stroll. The car, their enthusiasm and their use of the cars are a little more intertwined in their daily lifestyle. Uh, you know, if you think about just how busy we are as a society, uh, in some cases if a person lives in the area and the weather's nice and they're comfortable with where their vehicle's parked at when they're at the office sometimes the the drive into the office and the drive home that's that's the their most relaxing or or uh the their most la- relaxing part of the day where they can be present with themselves and why not do it in a fun car yeah i yeah, i I completely um, agree <laughs> yeah so so that's those are the kind of the the diff- the subtle differences that are adding up into bigger trends uh the other um the other big difference when it comes to usage is just let's just call it the the cars and caffeine era you know th- these yeah. more casual usages of these vehicles that allow for social interaction. and So rather than taking your car to the car show, spending the the week before detailing it, and then you go park it on the lawn and sit next to it all day, uh, younger generations are much more interested in these casual Saturday morning gatherings uh, you meet up, you have a good time. It's a bunch of like-minded people. It doesn't matter what the car is, how valuable it is, how how not valuable it is. And then by ten a.m., you're on with the rest of your day, and and it it works out well. Yeah,
1: well, and you you mentioned Radwood too, which I I've just been watching that sort of take fire even over the last I don't know, let's say the last year. Uh, it started yeah. off as oh,
3: yeah.
4: one or two little things, yeah. and it's it's grown uh-huh. immensely. Uh huh. Well, and and there's a perfect example of event usage. Uh, also drives interest and values in cars, and so all of a sudden, these Radwood has done a brilliant job at creating this fun event that, that's appealing to uh, to a lot of people, but certainly to um, our age group and younger. And it's also highlighting vehicles that have, let's just say, it, have not uh, experienced the love by the <laughs> the car community. And so now, all of a sudden. If someone has their their grandparents' pristine, wood-cladded town and country or a LeBaron convertible from the '80s that that probably couldn't have hardly given away, now there's a, an audience of people that wants that. Yeah, they want to show up with that absolute cream puff of a car that most people have forgotten about.
1: Well, those it, it goes back to I think that that uh, memory of the car you had in high school, right? Like I, mm-hmm. y- you had a Cougar, I had a Fox Body Ford Granada wagon. Uh, there you go. Is, like that's a go. super rare Fox body. Yeah, and I, you're right. I, I wrecked it, so I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, but but you, you know, I would lose my mind if I saw one, especially mm-hmm. if it was like the same color and and stuff yeah. as the as a car I had in high school. And you know, I I took on my grandmother's last car, '99 Crown Vic, for the same reason that y- mm-hmm. it would have sold for nothing. It, yeah. it had super low miles. I kind of needed a good. car anyway. Yeah, it it's uh it it is it's just a bad car to drive anyway cuz it's so floaty. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I was I was interested to see your impression of the Fox uh out in modern traffic. It sounds like it's kind of the same thing. It's just,
4: just well, it it's uh, maybe I over exaggerated that. It's 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 just a subtle difference in in in, in you know, kind of in my world, I either, so my daily driver is I have a 2012 F-150, live in Northern Michigan, four-wheel yep. drive, and, and it's also my tow vehicle if I need it. Um, and then I I am in the minority in the sense that I I do like pre-war cars, um, and so hence the Model A ownership and, you know, my wish list of vehicles is, is uh, you know, a little more champagne than reality for right now, but, you know, I'd love to have a 30s Packard at some point in my life. But who wouldn't? Um, and I so, mean... Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> But so, like you know, my world is either really early stuff, or you know, the like you and I were in the automotive industry. We get the opportunities to drive some pretty neat, modern, and the latest and greatest cars. And so, that kind of '80s and '90s, I really hadn't driven in a long time. And so, when I started driving that car after I purchased it, it's like, oh wow, okay, there there has been some evolution since the yeah. since the '90s.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's just but, it's like that little rough around the edges, you know, scruffy mm-hmm. scruffiness. Uh, it, it's uh. It's going to be an interesting, uh, I think, development over the next five, ten years to just just watch it. Um, so because you guys are in the insurance business, too, I'm assuming that there's contact with, you know, restorations, part suppliers. You, you have to know where the good stuff is coming from. Uh, are you going to see those companies sort of evolve or new new players pop up to, to sort of take the mantle?
4: Yeah, you're going to see both. You're going to see both. The the aftermarket has been really good in the last two decades, I would say, as responding to consumer needs because there was quite a long time when if you needed a part for your car, it was, again, you had to be a part of the club or you knew this person who knew a guy who maybe had this part in their barn. Um, (laughs) that's, that's not so much the case anymore. Plus you also have things, you know, the modern technology like 3d printing and, and just, you know, a lot more convenient and less expensive ways to remanufacture parts. Um, the, About five years ago, one of the things we were talking about uh, from a point of concern when it came to these 80s and 90s and newer vehicles was what was going to happen when it came to plastics, the wiring harnesses, and software programming. Mm -hmm. And and what I mean by that is, so so plastic is not a stable substance. At some point, it's going to become brittle or crack or fade or what have you. And it's all, in most cases, injection molded. So who's going to all of a sudden start reproducing? Uh, these molded dashes for whatever, right. um, you know, and long after the manufacturers stop supporting that. Um, you know, so who's going to tool up for that? Yeah, so those, those are the questions mold, Molds are not cheap. <laughs> no, they are not cheap. Yeah, you have, to, you have to see a need for many, many copies before someone's going to do that. Um, same with the wiring harnesses. You know, if you think of how complicated wiring harnesses are on modern cars compared to vintage cars, you know, like when I restored a Model T that I previously owned, I <laughs> literally... Chalked out on the garage floor, the four wheels where the headlights are, and I built a wiring harness for it. You know, you're you're not going to do that on a, you know, an early Lexus Coupe, for example, if someone's <laughs> getting to the point that you know, no. or an Acura Legend or something like that. So, so, the, but again, we're starting to see these little pockets. You know, the Acura is a perfect example. There's this, I don't know if I want to call it subculture of the car world, but there there are some just rabid. Early Acura fans out there that do serious drives. I don't know if you know the name Tyson Huey. Uh, he he lives out in um, the Phoenix area and and has a blog. And he he chronicled taking his Acura up past five hundred thousand miles and um, all of that. And and now has amassed a collection of '90s Acuras. Um, you know, and and he has just this whole following of people, and they do drives around the country in their Acuras. Um, so, yeah, so getting back to then my earlier point on the software. So, not so much the hardware. It's easy to reproduce hardware. Um, you know, people, there's individuals and companies that can, that can easily make a sensor or or fabricate a sensor that would work, but the programming on these modern, sophisticated cars that allows everything to work in sync, that, to me, is my question that still is unanswered. You know, will the manufacturers at some point unlock, uh, after a certain point, the software programming to their cars so that, let's say, 20, 30, 50 years from now, if you're restoring something or servicing something from now, who's going to have the programming that they spent millions uh, developing that's a good question. When the cars were new, that's so, a, so a, yeah, a, and, and I don't ha- and I don't have the answer to that. So hopefully someone for, you know from the aftermarket or whatever is listening and and says, hey, we need to we need to capture this information right about now.
1: What i found amazing is um, f- before I decided to inherit the car, I had I had Volvos, and so I had rear wheel drive Volvos for years, the turbos, and you know the seven hundred and forty turbos. Those had a particular flavor of, of Bosch. Uh, Jetronic fuel injection, and if you needed to get mm-hmm. a little fancier, if you wanted to modify or, or you know raise boost, you either had to add some pieces on or go to a standalone ECU. And in the last fifteen years, enthusiasts have figured out how to take those Jetronic computers and, and and use the basic system and and you know reflash the proms in them to, oh, yeah. to change the maps and stuff. This is stuff that wasn't happening when I was into those particular cars, and I'm amazed. At the, yeah. the the ability of that vintage vintage system now you know something from the eighties it just it'll support four hundred horsepower no problem with the stock injection yeah. system with some changes
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 and so there's a perfect example of anytime you kind of have concerns really in the past twenty years the market has done a good job at answering those you know once especially people who are well versed in computer programming and all of that they it amazes me what they can do. Well, uh, that's good. I
1: think the, the future is bright then for the, uh, the enthusiast market. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think uh, I, uh, we should probably let you get back to the uh, the, business, the commerce of insurance and uh, driving <laughs> and all that. But, uh, you yeah. know, uh, Jonathan Klinger, I wanted to say thank you very much for, for being on uh, Wheel Bearings and, and talking about where the, the market's uh, going. And, and if anybody's listening and you have a, a cool car and you want to insure it, you should talk to Haggerty. Yeah.
4: <laughs> absolutely Haggerty.com it's real simple and and there's a whole bunch of other fun information beyond insurance
1: yeah and and uh, yeah uh, just go and, and and have a good time enjoy your cars drive them <laughs> absolutely thanks so much let's we'll have to do this again
3: sometime support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant